Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron Eisenberg, along with our co-host, Tina Smith, who is filling in for Carol Zernio, our regular co-host, who is on special assignment. And we're going to be talking in just a moment with Brooke Bury. She is an expert on Social Security Disability and Insurance and an attorney who practices and does a lot of cases involving disability. Uh, Tina Smith, we did this program last week. We carried it over for another week because there's so much information. Uh, What do you think for caregivers who... Uh, maybe listening, uh, what are they going to learn out of this? I think, uh, you know, one of the things that they might learn is just, you know, what it's all about and that, you know, again, Social Security Administration is a, is a big organization, a lot of moving parts to it. And, you know, is it what's the difference between retirement and, and SSI and disability? And, and so focusing in on the disability this time, just, you know, listen for, you know, how you can, you know, how you can get the help that you need to, to get through this, that it, there is help out there um, if you think that you might be eligible and, and don't let it stop you from, from getting the help that you might need. Well, we're going to pick up on a case that Brooke Bury was talking about. Uh, she joins us now. Uh, Brooke is a, an attorney uh, who loves ponies, black coffee, and really tall trees. Born and raised in Texas from Brazoria County, earned her Juris Doctorate at the University of Houston in 2015 joined the Packard Law Firm as a Social Security Disability Hearing Attorney in May of 2018. Loves her job, enjoys spending time getting to know each of her clients uh, that she represents. And Brooke, we're so pleased that uh, you agreed to join us again for another segment. For those who weren't with us last week, give us a quick overview of what is Social Security Disability. Social Security Disability is a program that the federal government has to give you money if you can't work. It is primarily based around whether or not someone can sustain full-time employment. And if they cannot sustain full-time employment, can they prove that medically uh, with timely medical documentation? Uh, You can have one or more or a bunch of varieties of different types and severities of medical impairments. There are many different routes to choose, and there are many ways to get there. Um, It's, it can be a little bit of a complicated process and, uh, that's, that's pretty much a snapshot of it. Basically, you want to tap into Social Security before you hit Social Security age, uh, and you need medical impairments to get you there. Now, I know that most people who uh, take up the cudgel alone, who apply uh, for benefits, overwhelmingly, they're denied. They appeal. They're denied. It's as if the system is set up to keep cases down by denying them. It can absolutely feel that way. A large number of cases that get denied that we see once we get to them, uh, maybe if they tried to go on their own without an attorney or without anybody helping that understands the system, they can do their best. But these are very complicated forms. They require a lot of being able to submit medical evidence, being able to get that evidence in a timely manner, ordering it, picking it up getting it in a file uh, physically or 
I using download programs, all of these things. All of these steps can be very complicated and very difficult to do on your own. There are a large number of applications that get denied simply because there is not the the person applying was unable to jump through the hoops, essentially. Now, a lot of people who are listening are going to say, Brooke, you know, I'd love an attorney, but <laughs> I can't afford one. How can I pay her? So social security disability law is unique in that it is not like hiring a criminal defense attorney or it is not, and it's not like hiring a, a, a personal injury lawyer, you know, a, a call the call the guy with the sledgehammer on the semi truck and he'll take half your money. It's not like family law where you've got to try to find pull out private loans and you know you're paying even though you might not win. Uh, Social Security disability law has guidelines put in place that a large number of law firms use, including the firm that I work for, uh, where the most that you pay if you win is either six thousand dollars or six percent of your back pay only so there's no money coming out of the money coming in from the from your the day of your hearing if you win and forward at uh, the only amount of money that you we get paid out of is or whatever yeah whatever is smaller the only money that we get paid out of is money that is called back pay and that is only awarded if a judge finds you are disabled before the day of your hearing uh, so you're never, and if you do not win, you do not pay out of pocket. Uh, it's, it's a system that is set up specifically to help people that can't afford an attorney. Uh, it, it's a way of avoiding that, that hurdle for a lot of people. Now that is, is a- not every case. Every situation is not the same. Uh, they all cases are looked at individually and independently, but that is the vast majority of cases that we take and that we see are under that contract where if you don't win, you don't pay. And if you do win, you are only, we are only charging a very finite, specific, small amount out of a sum in the past. We're never taking money out of your pocket in the future. What about your expenses as a firm? I do not handle the money. I went to law school because they don't make me take math classes. Right. Uh, I do understand that there oh. is a small fee at my law firm. I think it's like $75, maybe more, maybe less. And that can be negotiated or waived depending on whether or not someone, um, a, a variety of different situations okay. uh, can come from that. But it's but it, minimal. It's very minute. Now let's pick up on the case that uh, you had both Tina and I sitting on the edge of our chair. Uh, a young woman, 31 years old, had been... Uh, abusive of alcohol for quite a bit of time, I ended up with an organ transplant, had quit drinking, uh, and she was applying for Social Security disability. What happened? So unfortunately, in that situation, uh, despite the fact that she had stopped drinking, she had caused so much damage to her body that stopping drinking was not going to fix her problem. And she was going to continue to have medical problems for the rest of her life. And she did win her case. And materiality was not found to be an issue because the things that we had discussed previously, materiality is if drugs or alcohol are affecting you in a way that makes your disability worse. If it's found that you drinking or doing drugs is making your disability worse, then you can be found disabled and not get any money, not get any payout because they'll say that you have a technical denial based on materiality of drug or alcohol use in your case. In her case, she won her case. She got 
she won her disability. Materiality was not an issue, despite the fact that her issues were caused by alcohol. Um, and that's different than the situation we discussed in the last hearing where the claimant was using a substance that was causing his medical impairment. And despite the fact that he was very much so unable to sustain full-time employment and did meet the definition of disability, the material issue of his drug use was actively keeping him, was actively a part of the problem. And in those instances, what we tell clients that lose is we say, okay, we will retake your case, we'll reapply, and you will stop doing whatever it is that they found to be material. And if your symptoms are still there, then that's a good case to argue, okay, then it wasn't a materiality issue. The issues are still there. Um, so that's the one of the ways that we handle those types of issues. That did, Now, that, this conversation, materiality, are, all started from a comment about using medical marijuana. Um, so what I tell my clients in general. Last week, we talked about medical marijuana. Yes. Now, what I tell my clients in general is I don't care if you're smoking. I don't care if you're using the drops. It is irrelevant to me that you are trying to find a way to treat your pain. What I'm going to be looking at is in your medical records, if it shows that there is a significant amount of use and doctors are recommending that you abstain, and you are not abstaining, that is going to become an issue at your hearing because you are no longer following your doctor's orders or instructions. In the same way that if you are depressed and you refuse to take your Xanax and the doctor says, take the pills that you have been given and then report to me whether or not you are depressed, that's going to be an issue at the hearing. If you are, for whatever reason, you are not following the directions given by your doctor, that becomes an issue. Now, the thing about medical marijuana is there are essentially no real materiality issues with the exception of the one client I had that had seizures that were right. very obviously caused by the marijuana. It's generally a non-issue. What I will say in a hearing is I will say judge in the record at 7F29, 2F4 and 3F11. Those are medical pages in a record of the exhibits. There was a notation that she, that the claimant stated that she was smoking medical marijuana in the evenings. We're in a state that it's illegal. However, there's no evidence in the record that it's a materiality issue. She's got lumbar back pain. It's not a lung issue. It's not asthma. It's not triggering anything. I do. I believe it's non-material to what we're looking at. And judges will say it's non-material. There are no, and also another thing that's really important that I like to tell my clients, some of them will panic or get worried about talking about these things on the record. This is, this is a closed hearing. This is 100% closed and private. You can say that you are sacrificing puppies for their miracle cure, whatever it is that you're doing. This is not something where a judge or an attorney can take information from you and say, well, they were using marijuana. I know they're on probation, so I'm turning them in. That is illegal. And no judge and no attorney is going to risk their bar license to, to say or do anything that's going to damage, a, to turn a client in for something like drug use or like alcohol use. That is not going to happen. That is not something that can happen. Uh, and that is a very big concern. I have a lot of clients that have, they don't want to be entirely honest or open because they're afraid of repercussions. And uh, that is not an issue 
there, there is no issue with talking about using drugs or alcohol in a closed hearing for social security disability benefits. It is a non-issue as far as legality or criminal issues. She's Brooke Bury. I'm Ron Aaron. Tina Smith is with us, filling in for Carol Zernial today, our co-host. We're talking about social security disability, how you qualify, how you apply, what the hurdles are, and we'll get, get back to this in just a moment. Uh, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. We appreciate you listening to us on Caregiver SOS on air today. We're continuing a conversation we began last week with Brooke Bury. She is a Social Security Disabilities Hearing Attorney, has a lot of experience dealing with Social Security Administration and people struggling with all kinds of debilitating illnesses and conditions. And as I listen to her, if you want to file a case, man, you want her on your side. She knows the law. So, Brooke, uh, walk us through now. Uh, what are the possible recoveries? Uh, what are the odds that somebody is, is going to be able to do that? And uh, you do need an attorney like yourself uh, through this hearing process. And how do you help? So what are your, what are you fighting for? What are you going for? Uh, with There's two types of disability, the Title II and the Title 16. The Title II, uh, both of them do, if you win, you do get Medicaid. That is the big ticket item for most of my clients. They want medical care. I could go on rants for days about why our system is so backed up because we can't give people basic medical treatment, but that's neither here nor there. Medicaid is a big ticket item and you will get Medicaid treatment. You will get Medicaid coverage if you win either a Title 16 or a Title 2 case. Title 2 cases are based on the money that you paid into the system. So in general, the amount of money that you get per month will be higher um, than Title 16 cases. That amount does depend on how long you worked, how much you were earning, and it's a sliding scale. So essentially, if you were earning $10,000 a month, you're not going to be getting a $10,000 check every month. Uh, It's going to be uh, more of a sliding scale. Uh, I I do not have the 2020 and 2021 household and uh, individual max numbers in front of me, uh, but most cases that I see Title II payouts, they are between $1,500 and $2,500, $2,800 per month. It really, really fluctuates. That is 100% a very much so a base by base, case by case basis situation. Title 16 is a finite amount of money every month. Um, and that is, I believe last year it was around 740 something or 760 something per month. It's a very low amount of money. I have a lot of um, 
very big issues with that. Uh, the fact that it's not even full-time minimum wage equivalent, but that's what they're saying that you can't do. Um, so that's, that's the title 16 amount that you're looking for. Uh, what are your odds? Your odds go up when you turn 50. They go up again when you turn 55 and they go up again when you turn 60. Why? Because of something called grid rules. Grid rules are the, the federal government's way of saying old dogs can't learn new tricks. And <sighs> what that is, is that is <clears throat> we look at when you're 49 and a half or younger, we look at every job in the national economy, all of them, sit down jobs, stand up jobs, heavy jobs, light jobs, sedentary jobs. We look at everything. Uh, and that includes jobs where you're sitting down, you have no skill, you are inspecting toothpaste lids, like in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory remake, where the dad just sits on a stool all day and stares at toothpaste lids. Those are the level of jobs that we're saying that anybody could learn to do under the age of 40. Once you hit 50 and then upward from there, we look more at what you used to do and if there are any transferable skills down from physically that you can take with you. Um, a lot of, so if you've always done simple sit down type jobs, grid rules really aren't going to help you very much because if you can be found to do simple sit down jobs, then there's nothing you can transfer down from. But if, for instance, you have a fifth grade education with no, uh, no high school education, uh, no equivalent to that, no, no further education, no technical training, and you were a brick mason, which is a very heavy um, skill level five or six type job, you were a brick mason and now you're 50, and the government says, well, this person could do pure sedentary sit down work, sitting six hours out of an eight hour work day, standing up to two hours. They could do that, but they couldn't do anything more physically demanding than that. And your previous work is very heavy work or medium work or stand up most of the time work. And there are no transferable skills from a brick mason down to a sit down type job. Then you'll be found disabled and Technically, there are still some sedentary jobs out there you could do, but because you don't have any skills that can transfer down to that and you have been found to only be able to do sedentary work based on your medical records, you win. So what that does big picture wise is it takes the odds of winning statistically and increases them once you hit 50 and then upward from there. Which is just a benefit. Quick, I was just going to ask just a real quick question, you know, for caregivers, if they're caring for somebody who's who they're looking to go through this process, do you as an attorney and will the judge, will they listen to caregivers? Are they allowed to be witnesses, so to speak, uh, provide additional information if that person isn't able to, to give a full and clear picture? There are very few instances when an adult can testify on behalf of another adult, regardless of the disabilities of that person. Um, instances where we do use witnesses are, um, I had a client that would have seizures in his sleep and he was physically, he was not present for his seizures. He had no idea when they would happen. He had no idea how long they lasted. He was literally unconscious the entire time that he was experiencing his disability. In that instance, we did have, I did have his mother testify what was physically happening to him when she would witness him having a seizure. That is one of the very, very few instances where I have had an adult testify on behalf of another adult. Technically, yes. 
adults can testify on behalf of other people. However, it's not, judges do not put a lot of weight on these things in general. I don't know why that is necessarily, but what's important to remember about once we get to the hearing stage is that it's not necessarily the things that this person is saying, it's their presentation and their opportunity to share with the judge. If they have memory problems and they can't remember something, that's going to be part of the disability. That's going to be part of the things we're going to talk about. If they don't remember or they don't know, that's when I come in and say, okay, so I'm looking at the record at 7F29. This is an overnight hospital stay with cellulitis. This happened in March of last year. Do you remember that having happened? Do you remember staying in the hospital that night? Um, so there are a lot of ways we walk the clients through. Now, caregivers can submit uh, there's forms that they can fill out as third parties. There are letters that I have submitted from parents of, um, of children with disabilities. There are letters that I have submitted from spouses of people that have become disabled. Um, absolutely, I will submit anything in writing that uh, a client would like for me to submit. I am 100% open to that. In my consultations, I absolutely, uh, I, if a caregiver wants to speak with me or has questions, I with I, when I have the permission of the client, I will absolutely talk with that person. I will email with that person directly. I will answer any questions that they have. On the day of the hearing, we'll talk. So pre-COVID, some judges do allow for another person to be in the room with that client so long as they are not speaking <laughs> um, and they are not going to be giving testimony later like for uh, as a, a social now that we are doing hearings and but that is at the judge's discretion because they are closed hearings now that we are doing hearings over the phone there is no way for us to definitively know who is and who is not in the room and the judge will ask the claimant are they in a quiet private place where they cannot be disturbed or bothered by others and if they're okay and comfortable talking about everything over the phone where they are if the judge hears other people over the phone, that can become an issue because the client is under oath and the client is only allowed to share information that the client has. Uh, if there, there was, I did have one hearing earlier this year where I could hear the client asking their spouse questions in the hearing and the judge stopped the hearing and that person had to re reset their hearing. And we ended up having to reset for several months later uh, wow. because of what scheduling is. Uh, so it, there, there are very few formal parts of this hearing and there's, there's no rules of evidence. There's very few rules of procedure. I can ask what we call leading questions. I can say things like, uh, do you remember the time that you said to your doctor that you have anxiety? I can, I can lead per people and say things and kind of feed questions to people. Uh, but the one thing that we do have to be very, very careful about is that the claimant's testimony must be their own. Um, because it's once again, it's not necessarily, the content of the answer that is going to make or break a hearing. It's the judge and the claimant being able to speak to each other. Well, Brooke, let me stop you here and ask you one final question for those who've been listening. Uh, a little advice. Uh, if you are unable to work, don't think you can go back. What would be the best thing to do to start this process? Call an attorney who specializes in social security disability law. There is no easier path. It does not cost anything to 
for in most instances with most social security disability firms. It is important that you get an attorney who does this kind of law specifically. I can absolutely 100% tell you right now, it is a very weird type of law. It is a small community of attorneys that practice this. It is federal, which is different than most lawyers that you know, or if you, you know, if so-and-so's cousin is an attorney, they're probably a state lawyer. They probably practice uh, literally anything that isn't federal. Criminal attorneys, uh, the guy that does your taxes, the lady that helps you get your divorce, they are not going to be familiar with this type of information and this type of law because it is very, very different than anything else out there as far as as far as the legal specifics Perfect. to it. Thank you. What do you think, Tina? I think this is, you know, important information. And, you know, like like she said, you know, it's important to to probably seek out, uh, you know, some some help. You, you know, you may want to start with the area agents on aging just to get guidance, but maybe call your your area um, bar association to find attorneys that specialize in this because it is, you know, there's a, there's a lot to it, and you don't want to miss out on this benefit if you think you might be eligible. Got to stop it right there. Tina Smith filling in for Carol Zerniel. Brooke Burry, you were great. We're going to have to do this again down the road. Fantastic. Thank you so much for all your time and you take care. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Bye-bye. On behalf so of Tina Smith, on behalf of Carol Zerniel, my co-host, and on behalf of Rick Burry, I'm Ron Aaron. Talk with you soon right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.